Hi there, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. On our menu today, Pauline the Daredevil, religious freedom issues in Europe, T-28 to Francis in Iraq, Super Mario and the Pope, and Happy the Elephant. All that is waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, we begin today with Parolin the Daredevil. Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin is the Vatican's Secretary of State. Now that makes him the Pope's top aide and also his top diplomat. Now, diplomats by training, by instinct, by personality, generally these are not bold types. Uh, generally, they are given to hyper-caution in the way they express themselves. They don't roll the dice. They don't play craps. Uh, they generally practice what, what, what they would call in the insurance trade risk avoidance. Uh, however, this week we have seen Cardinal Parolin uh, take chances on a number of fronts, and we're going to talk uh, about the most obvious one, uh, which is from January 28th to February 3rd, he was in the West Central African nation of Cameroon. Now, Cameroon is a country that is currently locked in a bloody civil conflict. For context here, uh, let's start with this. Cameroon is sort of like Canada in reverse. Uh, it's a country that is divided between French speakers and English speakers, but the difference in Cameroon is that the French speakers are the dominant cultural majority, the English speakers are kind of the struggling minority, and, and that has been the case since time immemorial. Uh, let's add that Cameroon is also governed by the last of the classical African strongmen, a uh, president by the name of Paul Bia, who has been in power since 1982. Now, just to give you some context, I am 56 years old, just celebrated my 56th birthday. Paul Bia came to power when I was a junior in high school. That's how long this guy has been around. Uh, he's actually a former Catholic seminarian who loves to wrap himself in the papal flag. Uh, and he is uh, French speaking and for lo these many years, almost 40 years that he has been in power, he has clearly governed Cameroon to the benefit uh, of the French speaking majority and the detriment of the English speaking minority. Now that has graded on the English speakers for a long time. Sort of the last straw came in 2016 when the idea was floated that English would no longer be would no longer be one of the two national languages. That is, you couldn't use it in schools anymore. You you couldn't use it in court uh, and stuff like that. Uh, that triggered a kind of civil insurrection in the northwest and southwest of Cameroon, the English-speaking regions. Uh, and in fact, uh, at one point, these separatists declared independence. They declared an independent republic by the name of Ambazonia. Don't ask me why they chose Ambazonia, but that was the name. Uh, they actually came up with a national anthem. They started issuing passports uh, and, and they created a police force and so on. Uh, now, uh, the central government under President Bia, uh, which, by the way, 
is routinely ranked by Transparency International as one of the most corrupt in the world, uh, that central government reacted the way central governments typically do uh, to secessionist movements, uh, which is with a heavy military crackdown. Uh, and that led to widespread bloodshed. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of Cameroonians currently living as internally displaced persons or as refugees. Uh, the military largely succeeded in snuffing out the independence drive, but since then the country has been locked in a cycle of sort of terrorist attacks and reprisals and then even bloodier terrorist attacks and even bloodier reprisals. Now into that maelstrom uh, this week stepped Cardinal Pietro Parolin, and I want to emphasize how unusual this is. First of all, the ostensible reason for Parolin going to Cameroon was that he was going to present the pallium, that's the woolen stole worn around the shoulders, that is the symbol of an archbishop's office, to the new archbishop of Baminda. Baminda is the ecclesiastical term for those English-speaking regions of Cameroon. The new archbishop is a guy by the name of Andrew Nikea Fuanya. Uh, now, the thing of it is, the Cardinal Secretary of State never does this. Uh, in the old days, all those newly appointed archbishops would be summoned to Rome on June 29th. That's the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, when the Pope himself would impose the pallium. But under Pope Francis, that responsibility has been delegated to the nuncio, that is the papal ambassador in a given country, on the theory that the ceremony really ought to be celebrated in the local church because it's kind of a feast uh, of the local church. The one guy who never does this is the Cardinal Secretary of State. And yet in this case, Pyroline did. And obviously uh, he was going not really just to bestow the pallium, but he was going to try to end this conflict. Uh, he went to Baminda uh, and there he said uh, that dialogue is the only way to resolve problems like this, basically telling both the military and these insurrectionists to stand down. Uh, he then returned to Yaoundé, the national capital, uh, and in front of all the civil authorities of Cameroon, most of which are part of that French-speaking majority, said they will never have peace without justice. Uh, which was a way of saying that you've got to do a better job of taking care of this English-speaking minority. Now, this is a massive roll of the dice for Paroline because it could backfire. Uh, you know, Paroline is now back in Rome. For all we know, the fact that he went there and essentially took up the cause of that English-speaking minority could lead to further reprisals and further bloodshed. It could actually make things worse. Uh, on the other hand, it could also be looked in the future, we could look back on this as a pivotal moment in which the conflict was resolved. We don't know, and that's precisely the point. Typically, cardinal secretaries of state don't wade into situations in which they can't be reasonably sure of being able to notch up a win at the end of it. This is one case in which Paroline uh, rolled the dice channeled his inner evil Knievel, his inner daredevil. Uh, how this will end, we don't know, but it's remarkable on the face of it. Okay, so that's Paroline the daredevil. Uh, second, religious freedom issues in Europe. 
Denmark recently passed a new law requiring that all religious preaching must be in Danish. Uh, that is, uh, that preachers cannot use foreign languages. Uh, in France, President Emmanuel Macron uh, is currently proposing a new law uh, that would place a, a number of restrictions on religious organizations. This in the wake uh, of the killing of a French teacher, Samuel Petit, uh, by Islamic terrorists, uh, and also the stabbing to death uh, of three French citizens uh, in Nice by a Tunisian immigrant uh, who was also an Islamic radical. Uh, and so what Macron is proposing are significant limits on homeschooling, uh, a ban on preaching in sports clubs, uh, a ban on what are what's known as virginity certificates, which some Islamic parents insist on getting from doctors before they will allow their, uh, their son to marry somebody else's daughter. Uh, and uh, finally, a requirement that religious organizations disclose the sources of their funding. Now, in both cases, both in Denmark and France, this is an attempt to clamp down on jihadism, on Islamic radicalism, even though in neither case do public authorities want to say this out loud. So these restrictions apply to religious groups across the board, but obviously the real target uh, is Islamic radicalism. Uh, and in both cases, these moves have raised real questions about religious freedom. The Council of European Bishops Conferences uh, has recently condemned the move in Denmark to require that all preaching must be in Danish, arguing that that compromises the ability of religious organizations to serve expats and immigrants. Uh, and in any event, it should not be the business of the state to tell religious organizations what language they use for worship. I mean, imagine that Denmark had passed this law prior to Vatican II, it would have in effect told Catholics that they couldn't celebrate mass in Latin, which was the practice of the universal church at the time. Uh, and the French bishops, uh, and by the way, Cardinal Paroline, uh, have also raised significant questions about these moves in France. What it illustrates is that there is a clear tension in Europe today between, on the one hand, the clear and present danger of Islamic radicalism and the right of public authorities to try to take steps to protect their citizens, and on the other hand, the equally compelling right of religious organizations, churches, to be able to make decisions for themselves uh, about which practices are consistent with their creeds. Uh, how that tension is going to be resolved remains unknown, but I think it's going to be one of the mega religious stories in Europe for some time to come. All right, next, T minus 28 for Pope Francis's much anticipated trip to Iraq. Uh, it is, uh, as of today, we are exactly 28 days away, that is four weeks away, from Pope Francis's scheduled March 5th to 8th trip to Iraq, a trip that is scheduled to take him to Baghdad, the national capital, to Erbil, the, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, also to Karakesh, one of those traditional Christian villages on the Nineveh Plains of northern Iraq, which is the cradle of Christianity uh, in Iraq, for that matter, in Mesopotamia. Uh, and, you know, just for the, 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 the astonishing thing about this trip uh, is still four week, just four weeks away 
we are still not entirely sure this trip is actually going to happen. Uh, there are at least three trip wires out there that could still get in the way. Uh, one is security considerations. Recently, there were twin suicide bombings in Iraq and attacks in other parts of the country. If that escalates, uh, it, it could become a problem that might prevent uh, the Pope from going. Uh, second is the coronavirus. Public authorities in Iraq, the health ministry, recently warned of a second wave of the pandemic that might be cresting in Iraq. Uh, if that proves to be true, if the situation worses, uh, worsens over the next four weeks, uh, that could get in the way. Uh, and finally, there is, of course, Pope Francis's sciatica. Uh, he, he recently had to pull out uh, of several events because of a severe bout of sciatica. Uh, he is reportedly getting treatment for that. But should the Pope wake up uh, on the morning of March 5th uh, and he is essentially immobilized by another attack, uh, attack of sciatica, uh, that too uh, could get in the way. Despite all of that, it seems clear that Pope Francis is absolutely determined to go. Uh, and it would appear that is for at least three reasons. One, uh, there is the geopolitical reason uh, that Iraq is one of the countries in the Middle East that has always had a significant Christian minority. Should Christianity disappear from Iraq, it would send a very worrying signal about the prospects for pluralism and religious tolerance all across the region. Secondly, uh, Iraq is also a global hotspot par excellence. Uh, it is a country that has been racked. It, it, it's been subject to external invasions and to internal tensions. Uh, for the better part of three decades. Pope Francis uh, has made peace and reconciliation uh, a kind of top note uh, in his social and political agenda. So clearly he wants to go for that reason. Uh, and then finally, of course, there is the, the embattled Christian community there, the local Christian community, which arguably is the most heroic in the world. Uh, it was driven out of the Nineveh Plains during the, the period of ISIS occupation from 2014 to 2016, uh, roughly 2017, really. Uh, and ever since, it has been heroically struggling to rebuild. It's kind of the Christian Dunkirk, only it's a Dunkirk in reverse, because rather than desperately trying to get people out, we are now desperately trying to allow them to remain. Uh, it's probably the most dramatic and most underreported Christian narrative of our time. For all those reasons, Pope Francis is uh, resolute uh, about his desire to go. Uh, and so I think the drama of the next four weeks is how is this conflict between the irresistible force of the Pope's will to go to Iraq and the unmovable object uh, of security, and the coronavirus and the Pope's own physical condition. Uh, how is the collision between these two things going to be resolved? There, all I can tell you is stay tuned. All right, Super Mario and the Pope. Look, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the favorite indoor sport uh, in the nation of Italy is <laughs> causing governments to collapse. Consider this number. Uh, Italy has been a republic since 1946, uh, that is, in the immediate post-World War II period. Uh, it's basically 75 years. And over that period of time, uh, over those 75 years, 
Italy has had 66 different governments uh, and is about to have a 67th. If you're scoring at home, that's an average of one new government every 18 months. Uh, Italy changes governments the way some guys change shirts, meaning like all the time. Uh, and the drama of the moment uh, is that Italy's current prime minister, Giuseppe Conte, uh, who has been in power uh, since 2018, uh, his government is, has fallen uh, because one of the members of his coalition, a small party called Italia Viva or Itali Italy Alive, led by former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi for motives that no one fully understands, perhaps not even Renzi himself, uh, pulled out of the coalition and Conte was unable to put together a new majority. Uh, so what happens in these circumstances? By the way, Conte was never elected by anybody. Uh, this is one of the things about Italy that Americans just can never understand, uh, is that you can have, in effect, a president of the country whom nobody ever voted for. Uh, but that's the nature of a parliamentary system. You don't vote for candidates, you vote for parties, and then they decide who's going to run the show. Uh, so Conte is out. Uh, the president of the Republic, uh, Sergio Mattarella, uh, has now called upon probably the most, fa most famous living Italian, at least the most famous living Italian politician, uh, Mario Draghi, former governor of the European Central Bank. Uh, he's called on Draghi, or as he's known among Italians, Super Mario, uh, in a kind of homage to the video game, uh, he's called upon him uh, to form a new government. It's not a, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to get a majority, uh, although it, it is now looking like that is quite likely uh, that that will be the case. Um, now, the interesting thing about all of this uh, is that Draghi sort of comes pre-approved by Pope Francis and the Vatican. There is a kind of kismet between Draghi uh, and Pope Francis. Pope Francis is, of course, a Jesuit, and Draghi is Jesuit educated. Uh, when he was a young man, uh, by the way, he's a native Roman, was born here in Rome, uh, and as a young man, he attended the Istituto Massimiliano Massimo, or the uh, Massimiliano Massimo Institute uh, here in Rome, uh, which is kind of a, well, f to put this in American terms, it's kind of a combination of a uh, junior high, high school, and junior college. Uh, Draghi spent 10 years there, virtually all of the 1970s. Uh, and during that time, he became a very close friend of a Jesuit priest by the name of Franco Rozzi, who was the president of the Institute for the last five years that Draghi was there. In fact, there's a famous story that in 2005, when Draghi was the head of the Bank of Italy, uh, he was uh, walking in downtown Rome near the residence of the, the prime minister, the Palazzo Chigi, uh, and he was spotted by journalists who were staked out there. This is when Silvio Berlusconi uh, was prime minister of Italy. And these journalists saw Draghi walking around and they pounced on him because they thought he was going to see Berlusconi to try to, you know, make a deal about something. And they asked him what he was doing and he had to explain, well, Actually, I'm not going to go see uh, Berlusconi. Uh, I, I'm going over there. 
uh, over there being the Jesuit residence that was just a few blocks away, which is where Father Franco Rozzi was living at the time, uh, because Rozzi was kind of Draghi's spiritual father, his spiritual guide, and he saw him on a regular basis. When Rozzi died uh, in 2010, Draghi actually wrote a very moving tribute uh, in L'Osservatore Romano, which is the official Vatican newspaper. Uh, and then in 2019, when Draghi stepped down as the governor of the Bank of Euro Bank, Central Bank of Europe, uh, having saved the euro during the eurozone crisis, L'Osservatore Romano wrote this kind of pian to Draghi. Uh, talking about he had made decisions on the basis of rigorous analysis and with audacity. And if you know anything about Pope Francis, you know that being audacious is pretty much the highest praise that, that he and his team have to bestow. Uh, last summer, Pope Francis actually appointed Draghi to the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. The two men have met twice, uh, at least, at least that we know of. Uh, in 2013, Pope Francis gave Draghi and his family a private audience. In 2016, Draghi was in the front row when Pope Francis received the Charlemagne Prize for European Unity. So to put to, to, to bottom line all of this, we now here in Italy have a Jesuit pope, and we're going to have a prime minister who is a kind of son uh, of the Jesuits. In fact, one of the Italian news magazines described him as the governor who uh, is devoted to St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits. Uh, what remains to be seen is whether these two sons of Ignatius are going to be able to make beautiful music together. Finally, this week, I give you the saga of Happy the Elephant. Now, Happy is a female Asian elephant currently housed in the Bronx Zoo uh, in New York. And when I say housed, I am not speaking metaphorically because the zoo closed down in the fall. It's not scheduled to open up again until May. So currently, Happy is stuck in this kind of big windowless concrete structure, what they call the elephant barn. Uh, she's the only elephant in the zoo, so she is entirely by herself. Now, uh, recently, a, an NGO animal rights activist group uh, called the Non-Human Rights Project uh, filed a lawsuit uh, against the Bronx Zoo, uh, arguing uh, that, that it, basically it's cruel and unusual punishment to have Happy stuck in this concrete center block by herself, uh, and that instead she ought to be released in an elephant sanctuary someplace. Uh, and the Catholic angle is that just within the last couple of days, there are five Catholic theologians who have filed an amicus brief that is a friend of the court brief uh, in support uh, of this petition to get happy released. And their argument was uh, that from a natural rights theory, that is the belief that nature is created by an intelligent designer, i.e. God, uh, with specific ends in mind, that the telos uh, of natural creatures, uh, certainly human beings, but all natural creatures, is to flourish in society, that is, in solidarity with others. Uh, and therefore, it is a, in a, it's an offense against creation. It's an offense against the telos 
uh, of Happy for her to be in this kind of confinement. And so they're arguing that she ought to be released in a sanctuary as well. This is going to be a very interesting test case to see whether natural law arguments fly in a secular court. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, Happy the Elephant, uh, and also, by the way, it's an interesting test case uh, of competing goods uh, because, you know, zoos are a noble thing, right? They're designed to expose primarily city dwellers to the wonders of nature. But on the other hand, uh, you, you know, you also want to respect the well-being of the animals who are housed uh, in a zoo. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how a judge adjudicates those competing goods. Uh, and so it's, it's a fascinating case. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Happy the Elephant is said to be getting the best of care, but is also said to be in a kind of long-term spiral of depression and sort of shutting down. Uh, we will see how all this plays out, uh, but it is fascinating. Except, you know, one of the great things about the Catholic Church, by the way, uh, is that there's absolutely no news story in the world upon which there is not some kind of Catholic angle. Uh, and if you want the ultimate proof of that, I would suggest to you that the saga of Happy the Elephant, ah, that's a pretty good test case. Uh, listen, if you want full coverage of all of these stories, you can find it on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We are your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. I would note we're also in the middle of our online fundraising campaign. If you can support us, please do so. Uh, we're not looking for much. Maybe what you would spend this month on a cup of coffee or streaming a couple of movies on Amazon Prime or whatever it is. Whatever you can afford, we would very much appreciate it. Also, uh, if you like this show, if you like Last Week in the Church, uh, please like it. Please give us a thumbs up or a heart or whatever the appropriate gesture of approval is on your social media platform of choice. Uh, believe it or not, those things do make a real difference. Uh, they help us spread the word. So please go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Tell your friends and neighbors. Last week in the church uh, is your convenient half-hour opportunity to catch up on everything you missed over the last seven days. All right, that is our show for this week. We will be here next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. Thanks.